So killing Navalny is largely a way of communicating with the West. And the message can be summed up as, what are you going to do to me? That's my colleague Masha Gessen. There's a temptation among some Western leaders to claim that the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is a sign of vulnerability on the part of President Vladimir Putin. But as Masha explains, all signs point to Putin being incredibly confident about his future. I asked Masha to come on the show to talk about this critical period in Russia and what Navalny's death means for the future of the opposition movement there. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. Masha, I want to start by bringing us back to July 18th, 2013, when something quite unusual happened in Russia. Thousands of people throughout Moscow came out to protest Russian President Vladimir Putin. This was surprising because Putin had largely made protests illegal. But people were compelled to come out in support of a candidate for Moscow's mayor, Alexei Navalny, who had just been sentenced to five years in prison on what appeared to be trumped-up embezzlement charges. The prominent Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny wants to campaign in September's election to run Russia's capital. Freedom for Alexei Navalny, they chanted outside the courthouse. Putin is a thief. As you write in your latest piece, Russian police could not stop the crowds, and the following morning, the Russian government actually freed Navalny. Can you talk about the significance of this incident and why it's relevant today? It was an extraordinary thing to watch. This evening, a few thousand gathered near the Kremlin walls in support of Navalny, now a political martyr to the opposition cause. This was a little more than a year after the crackdown began following the mass protests of 2011-2012. People were in prison awaiting sentencing for participating in those earlier protests. So people who took to the streets in July 2013 knew full well that they were risking their lives, right? Because risking jail in Russia is risking your life. Yeah, And they had watched this ridiculous trial unfold in the town of Kirov, where Navalny had been an unpaid advisor to the governor. So basically, the prosecution was arguing that he had somehow managed to embezzle money while having no salary and no access to any money. You know, it was just so transparent. But in this, it was also not unlike other cases in Russian courts. But somehow I think it was a combination of Navalny's charisma, his anti-corruption campaigning, which at that point was several years old and had become incredibly popular and just very resonant with people. Like they really hated the fact that this government was so corrupt and was so wasteful with their money. And the fact that he was being accused of the very same thing that he had actually investigated and the people who had actually participated in this stuff were accusing him of doing the thing that they did, but he didn't. And the ridiculous sentence, I mean, at the time, five years seemed like a really long time. Yeah. This was when Russia had just started jailing peaceful protesters. Putting dissidents in prison was not yet the thing that it became over the next decade. So a combination of all of that just made people completely outraged. And why did Putin decide to let Navalny go at that point? Well, that's a great question. I think that Putin is fundamentally 
terrified of protest. Weirdly, I think this is one of the secrets to his longevity hmm. because perhaps a more rational, in my understanding, ruler would think that having destroyed all electoral institutions, having basically destroyed public politics, well, what does he care if people sometimes let off steam by taking to the streets? But I think that by suppressing all protest at all times, he's solidified his, his grip on power, even if he does that solely out of paranoia. So this was the one case that I can think of when he responded not only by suppressing protest, but also by backing down a little bit. And, you know, there's sort of the larger theme of how tyrants establish the rule of tyranny gradually. I hate this expression, but it, it can be useful. Um, a myth, by the way, but, um, but still useful, the boiled frog syndrome, right? If we imagine that 11 years ago, Putin had jailed Navalny, given him a 19-year sentence, and then killed him in prison, that may have resulted in true mass protests, yeah. right? in actual outrage. By the time he killed Navalny now, it was a shock, but it wasn't a surprise. I'm wondering if we can go all the way back and talk about when you first heard of Navalny and what your first impressions were of him. So I don't actually remember when I first heard of him. I think I heard of him when he was involved in some ridiculous skirmish when he was a gun rights activist briefly, and I think he tried to go to a club while carrying a gun. He's lived many lives. I think this was like 2007. You know, it's interesting because I've, I've been thinking about whether he's lived many lives or not. And I think he was actually less contradictory than I think I mm. thought at the time, partly because I hadn't gone to the trouble of thinking about his activism in the very early aughts when he was in his 20s. But let me actually take us back there because I think this is super interesting. I think in the early aughts, when he first became involved in political activism, and I had not yet heard of him, he got involved with Yablika, which was a liberal party, definitely even in the Russian constellation of things, left of center. And this, I think, is important because I think that his later forays into libertarianism and gun rights and most troublesome uh, ethno-nationalism were all efforts to build a public politics where public politics had already been destroyed. So he was looking at places where people were most dissatisfied and where he saw most organizing potential. I actually don't see any evidence that he was ever particularly concerned with gun rights or with ethno nationalism, in fact. I think he stayed fairly true to his roots in this sort of social democratic framework. Um, but more than anything else, he was a super ambitious organizer. And that, I think, took him to, to various places. And finally, when I got really interested in him was around 2010. And I remember, actually, I was editing a magazine at the time, and, and I remember saying to the person who was in charge of the interview section, you know what, I think we have a public politician. And, like, we need to do a big story on him because this is something that we haven't seen in many, many years. Yeah. And this was when he started his anti-corruption activism. It was really an activist and an organizing goldmine right? because he really tapped into a reservoir of resentment and dissatisfaction and I think a kind of thirst for acting without cynicism. 
right, for acting as though things were real and words meant something and laws meant something, right? He was, he was a lawyer by training whose basic message for many years uh, before he started really trying to become an electoral activist as well was, look, there are laws, and these people who are in charge of enforcing the laws, they're actually violating the laws, and we have to hold them to account. And that's very compelling. When did you actually meet with him one-on-one? I think we met in person during the 2011-2012 protests. He was obviously one of the leaders of, of the protest. I mean, the protest movement, as protest movements do, came together spontaneously. Right? Uh, there had been people organizing these tiny little protests of maybe 100, 200 people at a time, and then suddenly there were thousands. Wow. Masses of people on the streets something that hasn't been seen in Moscow since the 1990s. Suddenly people just got really angry about not being heard and about a kind of obscenity with which Putin and his then uh, sidekick Dmitry Medvedev were acting and took to the streets uh, en masse. Freedom from corruption and election fraud. Freedom from the government of Dmitry Medvedev and Vladimir Putin. So I was very involved in one part of organizing, and he was very involved in another part of organizing, and we crossed paths as we coordinated, like, for the six months that the protests were going on. Navalny, you know, kind of became known for his charisma and his sense of humor and obviously his intelligence. I'm wondering if you noticed any differences between his, you know, public persona, the one that we saw on Twitter, and his private one. I mean, I don't know that I knew him well enough to have seen a private persona, but my sense is that he was very consistent. He was there was a kind of wholesomeness to him that I think was also very compelling in a in a country where the basic ideology is cynicism. Yeah, I wrote in the postscript that part of how compelling he was was his relationship with his wife Yulia, and the way he wrote about her on social media. She was very private until his death. She hardly ever made a public statement. She never granted interviews. But he wrote to her and posted photos on social media. And it was like, it was like watching a romantic comedy. It was just so lovely and so sincere. And so I don't think there was a kind of real private public divide. I'm wondering if you can talk more about the significant contributions that Navalny made to the resistance movement in Russia. Like you, you mentioned his anti-corruption activism. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, speak more about the work that he did specifically using social media and, and videos. So he started out basically as a blogger. He put a when he got this idea that you could use open source documents to investigate public officials and hold them to account. And this is like 2009, 2010. That's pretty revolutionary, right, to talk about open source intelligence gathering. And he put out the call and raised some money, hired a couple of people, literally a couple of people, who started doing this work with him. And then within, I'd say, five, six years, he built this into a national organization. Now, when I say national, I'm talking about a country of 145 million people nine or 11 time zones, depending on the year that you're talking about, and you know, the largest landmass in the world. Uh, so building a national organization in a country like that where political organizing is effectively becoming criminalized is an incredible feat. 
So they started YouTube channels. They kept experimenting and and improving their 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 production values to the point where then they started, I guess in 2015, they started making movies, like made for YouTube movies with fun graphics and 3D modeling and drone footage to show these lavish estates that public servants were living in in Russia. So this all kept growing his, his audience. The other thing that he started doing in parallel, which which began in 2013 when he tried to run for mayor of Moscow and, in fact, was able to run for mayor of Moscow, was build an, an electoral organization. So first in Moscow and then over the next five years, tried to run for president in 2018, which he was stopped from doing. He built a political organization that was also a national organization, which is kind of mind-blowing because, again, Russia was criminalizing political organizing yeah. at the time. There's an old uh, expression that Czech and Polish dissidents used in the 1970s, that they were creating a politics of as if, as if you could actually engage in politics in a totalitarian country. And Navalny was insisting on creating a politics uh, as if it were a normal country where laws could be observed and enforced. And so starting around the time that he built this organization that would have allowed him to run for president, that's when the real crackdown on his organization began. First, they declared them extremists, which basically means that anybody who's in any way affiliated with the organization, including having given it even the smallest donation, is implicated in the crime of extremism or terrorism. They forced them out of their offices. They started jailing activists. They forced people into exile. And then ultimately, um, they jailed and killed Navalny. We'll have more after the break. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Can you talk about the threats to Navalny's life over the years, just the various times that he was poisoned and very nearly disfigured or killed before this? After they released him from prison in 2013, they tried to get him to seize and desist in ways that didn't involve locking him up. Sometimes it was terrifying and sometimes it was it was comic. So first they took his brother Oleg hostage. They jailed him for three years. He spent almost the entire three years in solitary as explicit punishment for Alexei's activities on the outside. And I think they, they kept counting on 
Alexei stopping to save his brother, but the brothers had made a pact that that wouldn't happen. Then they placed Alexei Navalny under house arrest. But he being a lawyer, he read the law. He realized that in his particular case, he could not be placed under house arrest. Like that article of the criminal code did not provide for that as a penalty. So he violated the terms of his house arrest because it was illegal. And they kind of backed down and let him walk the streets of Moscow. This was, I think, 2014. Then physical attacks began. He was splashed with acid. He almost lost his eye at one point. And then, as we know now, but this was this became clear retroactively after he was poisoned in 2020 for at least two or three years before that. He was being followed by a group of FSB, the Russian secret police, chemists, killers, you know, the wielders of chemical weapons. And then in August of 2020, he was on a plane from Tomsk to, to Moscow when, as he described it later, he felt that he started dying. And he collapsed on the floor, started screaming. One of the passengers actually recorded the screaming and uh, uh, put it on YouTube. It is unbearable even to listen to. It's like, it is agony. In Russia, the price of opposition can be painfully high. The groans are from Alexei Navalny, as medics evacuated him from this commercial flight. The plane made an emergency landing, which is something that the assassins didn't count on. There was an ambulance at the scene when they landed. The ambulance apparently administered whatever first aid uh, was essential for saving his life. He was still in a coma, but he didn't die. And then Yulia, his wife, and uh, and some other activists flew to Omsk and pried him out of the hands of the hospital that was supposed to not let him go and evacuated him to Germany where he was in treatment for about six weeks and then in rehab for another two or three months. And then, having established beyond any doubt that he had been attacked with a chemical weapon, Navichok, having found, identified his would-be killers, Navalny went back to Moscow in January 2021 and was arrested in the airport live on camera. I want to talk more about his decision to return to Moscow. You know, Navalny kind of has this a somewhat complicated relationship with the West in the sense that he was so good at getting his words to resonate with Westerners. Like he would compare Putin to Lord Voldemort. He talked about how he liked Rick and Morty, but he also really refused to embrace the whole celebrity dissident in exile thing. And he didn't seek permanent refuge in the West, even though he surely could have gotten it. And I'm wondering if that aspect of him is why part of the reason why he was so beloved and respected in Russia as, like, someone who could genuinely succeed Putin. He didn't run away. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that has much to do with his relationship to the West, right? As you point out, he was absolutely steeped in Western pop culture and very good at, at wielding it in his rhetoric. There was Harry Potter and Rick and Morty, The Wire, which he quoted yeah. in court. And... His daughter, Dasha, who got herself into Stanford uh, without really much 
participation of her parents. I don't think they particularly wanted her to leave the country. And obviously, after he went back to Russia, uh, his children stayed in the West. And then Yulia, after the full-scale invasion, also went West. I don't think they have a particularly conflicted relationship with the West. I think it was the other distinction that you pointed to, which is the distinction between being a dissident and being a politician. He didn't want to be a dissident. Uh, a dissident in, I think, his understanding and my understanding is somebody who's primarily concerned with individual responsibility mm. and morality. He saw himself as an organizer, as a politician. And part of that politics as if was going back to Russia and continuing to organize. And, of course, he realized that more likely than not, he would be put in prison. I think he saw two possible scenarios in which he came out on top. One was that he would survive prison and outlive Putin. He's 25 years younger than Putin um, and just as determined. And so I think he, ha he thought he, could, he had a chance to be Russia's Nelson Mandela. I think he thought it's possible that mass protests would once again force them to back down. Not that I think he thought it was likely. He was a realist, but I think he thought it was possible. And there were mass protests, but they did not force them to back down. And I think the third scenario that he certainly talked about openly was that they kill him in prison, but that then his memory, his legacy would galvanize people. You know, the other thing that kept him from staying in the West was he, there were a couple of people who had been at some point central and very ambitious to Russian politics who had gone into exile in the West to save their lives. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the oligarch who spent 10 years in prison and who's been trying, I think, in vain to become relevant to Russian politics again. But it's very clear that he can do it from abroad. And Garry Kasparov, who is brilliant and I think was very inspiring and was very much involved also in the protests of 2011-2012, but threatened with arrest in 2012, left the country, lives in New York, has also tried uh, really hard to stay relevant and has failed. And I think looking at the examples of these wealthy, resourceful, intelligent, motivated men taught Navalny that you couldn't do it from the outside. So what has the response been like in Russia following Navalny's death? We don't know a lot about Russia anymore. What we can see is that more than 400 people have been detained for memorializing Navalny. They're laying flowers at various sites in his memory. And for doing that, they get detained. If we're talking about 400 people detained, then we're probably talking about tens and possibly even hundreds of thousands of people who've taken that risk. That's huge. It's got to make Putin very afraid. And I, I always do this. So I'm just going to say it again. Just because he's afraid doesn't mean that he's weak. I think that part of his paranoia is what keeps him strong. His hold on power is quite tight. But, um, but it does scare him when people take to the streets. The next inflection point in the Russian reaction is going to be the burial or memorial service. That could be a moment when there are more protests and, and more arrests. 
I want to talk more about Navalny's wife. You know, she just gave these moving remarks after the reports of her husband's death came out where she said that she would continue his work. You know, you mentioned earlier that she's pretty private, but now that Navalny's gone, I'm wondering what you think is next for her and for the opposition movement. I mean, the answer is I don't know. I can just talk about what I see. Yeah. She gave a two-minute speech in Munich where she was at the security conference uh, when the news of Navalny's death broke. Uh, and it was stunning. Yeah. And then the next day or two days later, she gave a speech saying that she was going to take up Alexei Navalny's mantle. And that was a political speech for the ages. I mean, that was just incredible. Привет. She talked about grief. She talked about sharing the grief of people who are mourning Navalny. She talked about rage. At Putin for taking away her husband, but also for, she said, for what he has done to our country our family and my husband. Which was just, I think, such an amazing way to address Russians who are in shock and grief over Navalny's death, to let them into her family and into her private grief, but also make it, uh, acknowledge just how big it is for the country. I mean, I, I just thought that was a politically and emotionally brilliant speech. So I think she certainly has what it takes. She has the will, the nerves of steel, and clearly the oratory talent to lead this movement. The question is, what's what's left of the movement? In some ways, the situation is very different than it was when Navalny made the decision to go back to Russia. What he couldn't have predicted in January 2021 was that just a year later, Russia would stage a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and that would mean that the center of gravity of the opposition movement, such as it was, and opposition media would move to the, outside the country. Yeah. So the mechanics of organizing are very different. I mean, the history of, of the world knows very few cases of successful organizing in exile. But that has happened. And it is conceivable that with a personality like Yulia Navalny's and with this weird configuration where the brains and energy are all outside the country, they're not going to organize to bring down the regime. That's not the project. The project is to have a politics in place for when the regime collapses under its own weight. And I think it's not impossible that they could do it. Of course, we don't know how long uh, how long a marathon this is. Yeah. Right. That's that's the big unknown. Is Putin going to live to be a hundred or um, or not? Putin has many opponents who haven't been killed. Many of whom are in prison. What does Navalny's death mean for all of these other activists who have been imprisoned? You know, the worst case interpretation of what we've seen is that they will keep killing people in prison. There was great pressure on Russia from the West to release Navalny, to to make him part of a trade uh, along with Evan Gorshkovich, uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter, 
who we know the State Department is involved in trying to, to negotiate the release of, and Paul Whelan, a former Marine who is also in prison in Russia uh, on what appeared to be totally trumped-up charges. So the sort of the darkest interpretation is that this is a warning that if you keep pressuring us and keep meddling in what we consider to be our own affairs, we're just going to be killing people that you're paying attention to. If that's how they're thinking about it, um, that's an absolute, uh, I, I hate using this term, but I can't think of another, it's a game changer, right? Because sort of historically, what has kept people alive in prisons in totalitarian countries, uh, not just the Soviet Union and Russia, but elsewhere, is the world's attention. The postcard writing campaigns, all of these things that remind these governments that someone is looking, that they can't just do whatever they want to people. So we've traditionally thought that silence is our biggest enemy. If the message they're sending is we're actually going to be killing people if you're paying attention to them, that's absolutely terrifying. And that takes away the last available human rights tool from from the West. So the answer is I don't I don't know what's going to happen to these prisoners of conscience, but uh, it is a horrible, horrible sign for them and and for other people who are on Russia's lists. After the break, Masha explains the motivation behind President Biden's new round of sanctions against Russia. President Biden has announced a new round of sanctions against Russia's government, targeting its military operation in Ukraine and also some of the people who were in charge of the prison camp where Navalny died. Before we get into the effectiveness or lack thereof of these sanctions, if you can talk about why it is that sanctions are sort of the go-to tool that the U.S. uses to go after Putin. So the history of sanctions is twofold. There is a kind of theory of change that goes with sanctions that the U.S. uses internationally. So it's not just in relationship to Russia. And the theory of change is generally that if people are poor and miserable, they will rise up. It's a theory of change that has been disproven over and over and over again. Why it remains a uh, tenet of foreign of U.S. foreign policy escapes me. It really is like a crazy person expecting a different result. Uh, the history of Russia's uh, of Russia sanctions specifically is that in 2009, a Russian accountant named Sergei Magnitsky was uh, basically killed in, in, in prison in Moscow. He was in prison because he had exposed a corruption scheme that went all the way up to the top of the Putin government. His employer, an American investor named William Browder, immediately after his death, evacuated his entire investment company to London and turned it into basically an investigative outlet to try to figure out what happened to Magnitsky, who was responsible for the corruption scheme, and who was responsible for his death. And then they came up with this idea that these people should go on a sanctions list, which would mean that they would lose access to their assets abroad, which many of them had. They would lose the ability to travel abroad, and they would be put on, on notice in general. So he got the Magnitsky Act passed in both the European Union and the United States. And so the, the United States Treasury, weirdly, is in charge 
of annually adding people to the so-called Magnitsky list. And I think that at the time, the campaign was inspired and possibly even somewhat effective. It was really the first attempt to hold Russian officials accountable in the West, which to them had until that point felt like a playground. Hmm. They could buy property here. They could send their kids to school here. They could vacation here. They could spend half their lives here. Uh, and then Russia was this extraction country where they got their money and, uh, and killed people. But the situation has changed profoundly. Uh, Russia is isolated from the West, not because of sanctions these days, but because it's waging this war in Ukraine. Sanctions have contributed to this isolation, but they've played a very minor role. Russia has self-isolated. When the U.S. does things like impose sanctions on prison officials, that's straight out of the Magnitsky Act. That was meaningful at the time. But it's ridiculous now because these guys are prevented from leaving the country by Russian law. Hmm, yeah. Nobody who is uh, connected with the security services is allowed to leave the country. So it looks silly and gratuitous. And ultimately, you know, I, don't, I, I just don't think it's effective. It's also $500 million worth of sanctions uh, just isn't very impressive when there is the question of $300 billion of Russian central bank assets, which have been frozen in the West, but nobody has figured out how to actually seize the assets and use them in some way that would uh, that would actually harm Russia or at least harm its ability to wage war in Ukraine. Putin's been saying that, you know, despite previous sanctions that the U.S. and other Western countries have put on Russia during the Ukraine war, that Russia is doing quite well economically and that the sanctions haven't really had an effect. Sanctions do seem like they've been pretty ineffective for a number of reasons. One is that uh, that's sort of the nature of sanctions. <laughs> They're not very effective. I mean, what, what actually happened to Russia uh, and to its relationship with the West in 2022, immediately following the full-scale invasion, is only partially described as sanctions. It's also a spontaneous economic boycott. A lot of Western corporations pulled out partly because they were afraid that they would run afoul of sanctions. But a lot of them probably wouldn't have been afoul of sanctions, but they pulled out anyway. So this spontaneous economic boycott, uh, combined with sanctions, has, has really influenced ordinary Russians. Their lives are worse. Things are a lot more expensive. Many, many more people cannot afford basic goods. There have been major interruptions in the supply of medical equipment and, and life-sustaining medicine. None of that affects the elites. It all affects ordinary people. As for the elites, they yes, they have a smaller pie to divide, but it's still all theirs to divide, right? And they're all now grouped inside Russia, sort of dancing around that precious pie of theirs. Early on, we heard a lot about, and we don't even talk about this anymore, but we heard a lot from European countries about how it's impossible to stop using Russian oil and gas. Yeah. By impossible, they mean very expensive. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about cutting off the flow of money to a killing machine, talking about how expensive it is, is just hypocritical. The other thing is that uh, part of the theory of change that underlies sanctions is that sanctions should always be imposed gradually because every tranche of sanctions is also a warning that harsher sanctions are coming. 
But this theory of change being bogus, <laughs> um, it actually works in, works in reverse, right? Every tranche of sanctions gives Russia an opportunity to adjust to those sanctions before the next sanctions come into being. You know, there are sanctions on dual-use technologies and military-use technologies that Russia has figured out various ways to circumvent by importing these technology through, technologies through friendly third countries. When I was in Ukraine in November, Ukrainian defense experts were telling me that when they shoot down Russian-made drones, not just Iranian-made drones, but Russian-made drones, they find intel technology inside of them. Right. which is directly banned by sanctions, but is imported through third countries and then is used to manufacture drones. And so, you know, when, when Ukrainian defense officials are telling me that while they're waiting for Western equipment to arrive so they could launch the counteroffensive, Russia set up mass production of drones, which is something that Ukraine hasn't been able to do so far. What they're actually talking about is that Russia is better at circumventing Western sanctions than the West is at delivering on its actual promises to Ukraine. In your recent piece, you said that many American analysts are, are kind of tempted to see Navalny's death as a sign that Putin is growing increasingly weak and desperate. And yet, you know, every single thing that we've talked about in this conversation um, seems to point to the idea that Putin is actually rather confident. I'm wondering if you could just speak more to the significance of Putin's timing here, why you sort of came away from Navalny's death feeling as though this is actually a, you know, a sign of power rather than a sign of, um, you know, someone who feels like he's increasingly under threat. So killing Navalny is largely a way of communicating with the West. And the message can be summed up as, what are you going to do to me? And yes, he's feeling confident because he's, I think, is fully certain now that the war in Ukraine, the, um, sort of the a war of attrition benefits him. He has the human resources. He has the economic stability and Ukraine is really starting to choke. Right? He is also looking forward to a Trump administration, which is simply going to end all aid to Ukraine and any pretense of trying to do something to protect human rights inside Russia. And so I think part of the message is to a Biden administration that he now perceives as a lame duck administration. And of course, he believes that it runs the entire West uh, so, so it's like a fuck you to, to the entire West. Well, thank you so much, Masha. Thank you. Masha Gessen is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read their work at newyorker.com. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Julia Nutter, with editing from Stephanie Karayuki and mixing by Mike Kutchman. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of Global Audio. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.